<laughs> Good morning, everyone. Uh, yeah, as, as Ross said, uh, if you wouldn't mind, turn into John chapter 4. And uh, as Ross had said, we are on a series of sermons looking at encounters that people had with Jesus in the gospel according to John. And this morning, we're going to look at the woman at the well. You remember two weeks ago, we looked at the skeptic, Nathaniel. Uh, last week, we looked at the religious man, the religious zealot, uh, Nicodemus. And this morning, we look at the, at the woman at the well, John chapter 4. And as you're turning there, I suspect some of you are going, oh, I know this one. This is very familiar to me. Well, allow the Spirit of God to work in each of us. I can tell you that I have heard, I still remember a sermon that I heard on this uh, passage almost 20 years ago. And I want to allow God's Spirit to work in us that we can hear it and experience God fresh all over again. And so, um, would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that your Holy Spirit is among us. And we ask you, Lord God, to pour your love into our hearts through your Spirit that we might, through these familiar passages, re-encounter Jesus, be overwhelmed by his amazing love, by your amazing love. That we might be transformed and that we might, by your grace, be instruments of your work in a darkening world that Jesus might be exalted, your kingdom might grow, and we might know your joy and your peace through your Holy Spirit. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So recently, my daughter Maddie introduced me to a preacher from Chicago named Charlie Dates. And I've only heard one sermon of this guy, but my goodness, can he preach? And there was one line he said twice, and I remember it. And he said, oh, oh, I wish I could preach it like I feel it. And this morning, I wish I could preach it like I feel it. And so would you stand, please, if you are able? And we are going to look at an encounter that a woman had with Jesus. And I pray that the Spirit will move in you as well and that you will feel it. This is John chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, which is right around noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well, 
and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, and and I want you to just picture this in your mind, by the way. Uh, I can almost see this woman's shoulders slouching and her confidence diminish as Jesus asks her this question or tells her to do something. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes to us, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. I wonder if you can get a sense of who this woman is. And the one way I want to think about who she is is I want to compare her to the man we looked at last week, this man Nicodemus from John chapter 3. And the woman who we're going to learn about this morning could not be more different than the man who we learned about last week. So just right off the bat, Nicodemus, he's a man. The Samaritan woman is a woman. Good. Nicodemus is Jewish. This woman is Samaritan, and the scripture gives us a clue that Samaritans, that Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. The the history is there is fascinating. You'll recall that this had been one nation at one point, and there had been a civil war, the separation north and south. Eventually, the north where Samaria is got overrun with Assyrians, and the Assyrians did in their time, what the Soviet Union did in our time. It would take over a land and it would extract the people, it would exile the people, and it would replace it with foreign peoples. And it was a way to essentially do this diaspora that would spread the culture so thin it couldn't survive. And the stronger culture, the the conquesting culture, 
would dominate. And so those people who were left in Samaria, even if they tried to continue to worship the God of the Bible, Yahweh, what they were introduced to was all of these other gods. And by the way, that was already built on a history in that northern kingdom of unfaithfulness. And so the Jews who looked up at those people actually looked up geographically, looked down upon them because they saw them as half-breeds, that they didn't worship just the Lord God. They worshiped the Lord God among a whole host of other gods, which if you are familiar with your Bible, you will know is not worship of the one true and living God. And so Nicodemus is Jewish, but this woman is Samaritan. She is hated in the eyes of the Jewish people. It says Nicodemus also is a Pharisee, meaning he's a, he's a leader in a religious sect. It's marked by orthodoxy and an external following of the law and trying with all their might to obey God. This religious, religious man. And compare that to this woman. She has had five husbands and the man she is with now is not her husband. She is, as we might say, a woman of loose morals. And Nicodemus is powerful. The Bible describes him as a ruler of the Jews. This woman, this tramp, as the world would call her, is powerless. And by the way, it should signify something to us that I have not once given this woman's name. Do you want to know why? It's not recorded for us. We know who Nicodemus is because we have Nicodemus. We're, we are given his name. This woman is such an outcast that we don't even know her name. It's like she's tossed around, thrown away like trash. That's the Samaritan woman. And now what I want to do is I want to look at the ways Jesus initiated with this woman. How does God incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ, come and engage with this woman so that she encounters him? Well, it starts, if you're still looking at, at John chapter 4, it starts at, at verse 3. It says, Jesus left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. He had to pass through Samaria. Okay, so Judea's down here in the south. Galilee's up here on the north, and Samaria is between the two. And remember I said I can remember a sermon from like 15 or 20 years ago? I remember the preacher saying that the Jews hated the Samaritans so much, rather than go as the crow flies, they would go around Samaria. By the way, they're walking it's not like they're in a car, right? They're walking. This is, this is difficult. They're just making it harder on themselves. They're walking around Samaria to get to Galilee. But yet the scriptures say that Jesus had to go through Samaria. What was the bridge out? Like, why did he have to go? Well, that word, I love the way the King James Version translates it. It's not had, it's must, needs. Think about that for a second. You Southerners, you guys use words all the time that crack me up. You say, the, you say two words when you mean one thing. 
Come on, might could? Right, might could? <laughs> yeah. I might could do that. Well, what does that mean? You double could do it? Like, I don't understand what that means. Well, must, needs. You know what it means? It means Jesus was under an obligation. He was under a moral compulsion to go that direction. Do you want to know why? Because it was his intent to meet this woman who is an outcast. The woman who the world would throw away, he went where the Jews would not go because he was, it was designed that he would go encounter her. He had to go. And then what did he do? Well, if you look at verse 7, look how Jesus initiates the conversation. And I want to set this up in a, in a hashtag Me Too era. I want to set this up. You're a woman. In that Middle Eastern culture, think you got a lot of power? Five husbands? The woman you're with now is not your husband. It's about noon. Pretty much every commentator agrees that the reason that it's at noon, the reason she's going out there, it's the heat of the day, and she is a person who is not accepted by others. And so that she has to go out there at noon when no one else would go because it's too hot, because no one else would fraternize with her. She's a nobody. She's an outcast. She's alone. And she sees this man, a Jewish man. What's he going to do? Is he going to curse me? Is he going to rape me? Is he going to spit on me? You think she's anxious? Fearful? Jesus says to her, verse 7, give me a drink. Is it any wonder then that the woman responds the way she does? This is not Texas courtesy, right? This is not a man holding a door open for a woman in Texas, which, by the way, does not happen in the Pittsburgh where I'm from. And she says, sir, and I can almost hear it three different times she says, sir, and I can almost hear it how each time she says it differently because God is moving in her. And she says, sir, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? This is scandalous. What Jesus does by engaging with this woman is scandalous. It's so scandalous, in fact, that do you remember when we read, it was verse 27, when the disciples come back later, do you remember what it said? They marveled that he was talking to a woman. You did not do that. And certainly not a Samaritan woman. And it's almost as if the disciples, in their minds, are accusing Jesus of bad intent. Remember it says, uh, it says, uh, but no one said to them, which means they were thinking it, right? Verse 27, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? This is scandalous that he is talking to her. But do you see how Jesus takes the initiative? Jesus goes to the place where no Jew would go. Jesus talks to the woman who no one would talk to. And he engages her. 
not in a hostile way. I want you to listen and get a sense of the tone of voice that must have been used in this conversation. Listen to how Jesus talks to her when she says, how do you ask me for a drink? Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, I wonder, who here thinks that she knew what he was talking about? Anybody? Nobody. Not a single hand went up. I don't think she had a clue what he was talking about. But if she had known her Old Testament, you remember all the time she said, Our Father Jacob, she is tying herself to the, to the, the, the history of Israel. That man Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, she is tying herself to him to the legacy, to the promises of God. But I almost guarantee she didn't know any of them. And she would not have known, for example, Isaiah chapter 44, verse 3. Listen to what it says when, when, when God refers to water, living water. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 3. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. See, over and over again in the New Testament, one of the ways God signifies his coming is water in a desert. That he is bringing life where there is death. Do you remember Ezekiel? Do you remember the vision that Ezekiel had in Ezekiel chapter 47? you remember the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel? And how at the beginning of that book, he had this vision of God. And God's glory was leaving the temple that was in Jerusalem. But by the end of the book, he has a new vision. And in the new vision, God's glory is coming back. And in this vision, in chapter 47 of Ezekiel, it talks about water flowing out of the eastern portion of the, of the temple. And east matters because to the east of the temple is a sea Sometimes referred to as the salt sea, other times referred to as the dead sea. Do you want to know why it's called the dead sea? Nothing can live in it. It's dead. There are no fish in it. But listen, the way God describes in this vision given to Ezekiel, the way God describes what will happen when the glory of the Lord moves out of the temple into death, life will come. It says chapter 47 uh, beginning at verse 8, when the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh, meaning water into the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea water will be healed, is what that says. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be very many fish in a sea that has no fish. For this water goes there, that the waters of the sea, of the Dead Sea, may become fresh, so everything will live where the water goes where the river goes. I don't think this lady had any idea what Jesus was talking about when he said living water. And I wonder, do you? Do you have any idea what he was talking about? We have the benefit of John's gospel that sits before us, and we can look just a few chapters later in John chapter 7, beginning at verse 7, where Jesus is at a feast and if you read the Gospels, you will see Jesus intervene in ways that just are overwhelming and antagonistic. 
intentionally so. And he stands up at this feast. Listen to what it says in verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And I have to imagine the people there were like, what is he talking about? And John explains it. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. But that's in the future. That's in the future. I don't think this woman could possibly have known what Jesus was talking about. And I'm fairly certain she didn't know because her mind is so focused in the physical that she totally misses the spiritual. Do you remember when, when Ross was preaching on talking Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus last week? How Nicodemus was focused on the physical? Jesus said, you must be born again. And remember Nicodemus was like, uh, a man's supposed to enter into his mother. Like, I don't under, how does, like, what are the mechanics, the logistics? How does that work out? We can be so stuck in the physical, the earthly things as Jesus describes them, that we can miss the heavenly things, the spiritual. And that's exactly what happens with this woman. And he says that I would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, You have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater? Like, who do you think you are? Are you greater than our father Jacob? And that's when Jesus says to her in these words, beginning at verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. He's talking about the Holy Spirit who Jesus himself will give. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And oh, how I wish we had time to go into those two verses. Curse the 35-minute cap. Um, The woman said to him, though, listen to how she responds. You know she's focused in the physical. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Do you see the disconnect? She's focused on the physical. He's focused on the spiritual. And this is where Jesus penetrates a little bit. And he starts to prick her conscience. And he says, Go, call your husband and come here. And this is where I said I can almost feel her slouch, see her slouch, shrink back. And she confesses that she has no husband because she has five, has had five. And when Jesus tells her exactly what her sin is, I do not hear condemnation in it. In a sense, what I hear love that she who confessed to him his response to her is what you have said is true he doesn't spit on her he doesn't hit her he doesn't do anything like that his love for her is so great that not only does he go through Samaria to get to her not only does he initiate with her He engages with her and treats her as a human being. 
treats her as a child of God, even though the culture would call her trash. Do you see what that, that that is love? Is, is that what the church of Jesus Christ today is known for? I got to ask you, for those of us who long to see God move, for those of us who long to walk in a manner worthy of Jesus, do you see how he does it? And by comparison, how often we as a church, and I don't just mean centennial, I mean Christians at large, we constantly got to apologize for ourselves for how we stick our feet in our mouths, how we hate on people. Well, this woman perceives he is a prophet. And rightly so that she perceives he is a man from God. And she asks another question, and this question again is stuck in the physical. I've heard so many sermons about this that say, oh, the woman was just distracting him. She was trying to change the conversation. I really don't think so. I think she's got a legitimate religious question that she wants to have answered. And she said, our fathers say we're supposed to worship on this mountain, but you Jews say we're supposed to worship, on Jeru worship in Jerusalem. What is true? What is true? Have you met people like that? They're confused spiritually. They don't know Jesus. They want to know what is true. And Jesus, and I'm not going to go into much detail on this, but he says, believe me, woman, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. Remember that history. She doesn't even know the God she's worshiping. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews, but... But a change is coming. In fact, that change is already here. Jesus says the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Worship in spirit. Worship not only with the head knowledge, not only with an appropriate doctrine, not only with a knowledge of the scriptures, not only being able to go through systematic theology, but to know God in such a way that you can worship him in spirit. Do you know what the scriptures say God will do when we come to faith in Jesus? It says that he pours out his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. That the experience we ought to have as followers of Jesus is to receive this unbelievable love that God has given. Because it's been poured out, not like dripped out, poured out. The Apostle Paul thinks of that so highly that he says it twice, once in Romans and once in Galatians. And he says in Galatians that it's poured out, it sends into our heart a spirit of adoption that we can cry out, Abba, or Daddy. We can call God our Daddy. Do you know him that way? His longing is that we all will know him that way. But too often we're not worshiping him in spirit and truth. We oftentimes worship him in the physical and, frankly, error. She then says, and I can, again, I, I don't want to project too much on the scripture, but I have read through this and prayed through this so many times. You can almost feel this progression, how her heart is changing. And she looks at him and she says, I know that Messiah is coming. 
God, would that we all would have that anticipation and confidence. I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. It's almost like an invitation. She wants to hear it. Is it you? And listen to what Jesus says. I who speak to you am he. This is the Jesus who spoke in parables. This is the Jesus who spoke in parables because he said there will be people who are going to hear, but they will never understand. This is the Jesus who, when the Pharisees came to him, the religious leaders of the day, when they came to him, they said, would you just tell us if you're the Christ? Speak plainly to us. Do you remember what he said? I've told you already. He's like, what? Like the lawyer in me wants to go, no, 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 you didn't tell me. I want to hear it directly from your lips. Are you the Christ? And he says, I've told you already. But you chose not to believe. Even his own disciples who are traveling with him, they don't call him Christ. That will come much later. When they come back, did you see that in verse uh, we didn't read this. Verse 31, the very next verse of what we read, it says the, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi. They called him a teacher. But he says plainly to the outcast, to the tramp, to the powerless, to the outsider, with me, with the Lord Jesus, you are in. Because I came to Samaria for you, for one person. And I initiated with you. And I talked through with you. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? Because he loves so greatly. His love is overwhelming to the point that he's willing to put up with ridicule, ridicule and scorn from his own disciples when they come back. The accusations of the people he is to lead. No, no, no. His love is so much greater. And listen to how, as the Spirit of God begins to move into this woman, watch what happens when somebody has a transformational encounter with Jesus. It says this, this is when his disciples come back and they start to accuse Jesus. And it says in verse 28, so the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. And almost to whet their appetite. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Do you catch how, what a transformation this is of this woman? All she's focused on is the physical, the water and the well, the water and the well. And what does it say in an almost by-the-way fashion? She left her water jar at the well. She's a loner. She's isolated. She can't be seen with good company, so she's got to go out to water in the heat of the day, go out and get water in the heat of the day. But what does she do? As soon as she has a transformational encounter with Jesus, she rushes into town. And she's got to tell everybody else. 
But more than that, it's not only that God takes away, that Jesus takes away this isolation from her. He takes away her shame. Why do you think she hides? Why do you think she comes in the middle of the day? You think she's proud of what she's become? She knows who and what she is. And Jesus takes that shame away completely. Because she doesn't run in to the town and just say, come see a man. She says, you know me. They got a word for me in this town. But I am telling you that I think I met the Christ and he told me all that I ever did. That is the work of the Holy Spirit in her, that when Jesus comes and encounters a person, and particularly the person who's the outcast, I know a lot of religious people who will never know Jesus, and I have seen God work miracles in the outcast. And then their shame becomes part of the testimony of God's greatness. Do you know what I'm talking about? Do you know anybody like that? I've got a friend of mine who's in jail right now, who's in prison, not jail, he is in prison right now. And his testimony is that his anger and his alcoholism got him into a lot of trouble. And he gets arrested. And it is because God grabbed him there that another man who loved Jesus came to him and as, as my friend was bawling out the other man, the other man said, God bless you. See, he didn't return reviling for reviling. He loved. And my friend now, though he is in prison, is a new creation. And I, I know why you're smiling, because Bob and I both call him our friend. This is the power of the Holy Spirit. And I wonder, do you know that power? Do you know the power of a changed life? Have you personally had an encounter with Jesus? I will tell you, you are in danger if you grew up in a Christian church or a Christian home. I remember talking to a young man years ago. He and I worked together, grew up in the church, grew up in a Christian home, and I was sharing with him. I had, I had just put my faith and trust in Jesus, and I'm like, listen, dude, I got to tell you, I just became a Christian. And he went, What? I don't even know what that means. But God's love for the outcast is so great. And what, like, do you have the humility to receive him? Do we have the humility to just receive him for who he is? To encounter him for who he is? To receive his love? that that love might pour into our hearts through his Holy Spirit, that we might be able to cry out, Daddy, Father, and love him deeply. You know, if that has happened to you, if, if, if God has worked in your heart in such a way that you have had an encounter with Jesus and the Holy Spirit is in you and that love of God is in you, there should be a change. There should be a change. And it should start with a love for God. And then, not surprisingly, it should manifest in a love for others. 
Now listen, this is not a message that says, okay, go love God, go love others, everybody good? No, we're out of here. This is a plea to get to know Jesus. This is a plea to cry out for the Holy Spirit to be poured into your heart if you have never received his spirit. He came to give life, Jesus came to give life and to give it more abundantly. He wants to give that life to you. And like I said, it should, it, should, it should grow into this love for God. And just like this woman at the well, this love for God should overwhelm us in a love for others. What do you think, what do you think motivated her desire to go into town? To tell all the people who knew what she was, who she had met. She takes, goes right into the community where she is known. And she says, I have to introduce you to Jesus. I want to give a couple of examples of how I have seen, that I hope will encourage you, of how I have seen God move in this little congregation of late, where we have seen the Spirit of God come and move. And Ross prayed for Roxanne Bowser earlier, and Roxanne Thursday night is in the hospital, afraid that she's having a stroke. Saturday morning, Carol Anglin's in there, Ross is streaming in there, Les is streaming in to see her, and you know what her husband Ron tells me? Dan, just we could feel the love just by showing up. Or John McSorley, if you know John, John reaches out to me. He says, hey, Dan, uh, would you come with me? I really want to start going to ministering to uh, street people in Fair Park. That's a work of the Holy Spirit in a man. And here's how awesome God is, that when his spirit begins to work in one, it's almost like it overflows. His cup overflows. And John, if you know, has bought a new house and he's working like crazy to get that thing ready for him and Jenny and the baby that's on the way. And he texts me one night and he's like, Dan, please pray for me. I'm going to be out at this house all by myself, lonely, working, painting, doing all this stuff. And I, or no, sorry, he emailed me and he emailed a group of us that were in a, in a men's Bible study together. And he's like, just pray, just pray for me. And Ricky Lopez says, what time can I be there tomorrow night? And Dan Ferguson says, yeah, I'm with Ricky. What time do you want us there? And then on Thursday night, Scott, Bob, uh, who else was there? David Johnson, David Ward. I'm missing somebody. Who am I missing? Somebody else went up to serve John, to show him some love. That this love that we have received is not meant just to keep to ourselves, but to share it with others. Not only in the crisis, like when Roxanne is in the hospital, or if you heard Lori Andrews yesterday, if you were here, for her to share how beautiful it was and how powerful it was for so many people to stream into the hospital during Bob's last days. See, that is love. But we've got to be a people who are not just great in the crisis. I think we're very good in the crisis. We've got to be a people who know one another and love one another. If you don't know this kind of love, I want you to turn, if you have your Bibles, to Revelation chapter 22, verse 17. If you don't know this kind of love, this kind of intimacy with the Spirit of God, if the Spirit of God has not poured into your heart, 
then I want to invite you from Revelation chapter 22, verse 17. This is what the Holy Spirit himself says. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life, this living water, take the water of life without price. Are you thirsty? You know, if you ask Jesus, he will give you living water and you will never be thirsty again. I want to invite you right now. Normally we close in prayer with the preacher praying. What I'd like to do now though is just take a moment before Rick and the band start to perform. Pray on your own. Have you tasted the Spirit of God? Ask Him. It's His desire. And if He's got to go through Samaria and do something scandalous, He will because He loves you that much. May God be glorified. Amen.